Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. All right, welcome everybody to the first clinical podcast of the year, January 2024 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Special thank you again to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO for making it possible for us to be together. I'm Rimley Crow, and today I am joined by Jeff Rollman, Michael Caduce, and Dr. Bill Toon. And we are also really excited and thankful to have with us from the authorship team from the paper that we'll be talking about, Dr. Brian McGuire, Paul Amiri. The name of the article that we are reviewing today is Occupational Injuries and Illnesses Among Paramedicine Clinicians, Analyses of U.S. Department of Labor Data from 2010 to 2020, and this is published in Pre-Hospital and Disaster Medicine. As always, our discussion will be paired with an article written by columnist Tony Fernandez and Michael Caduce in EMS World. It's called Journal Watch. Encourage you to check it out on emsworld.com. You can find it under the category of Education and Training. And I want to thank all of you who are here at this live recording with us. As we begin, I want to remind you all that you can use the chat feature on your screen at any time, type in questions, comments, and we'll bring those into the conversation as we go. And with that, any further ado, I want to welcome to the virtual stage our authors. So thank you again for sharing your time with us. I think it would be wonderful for our audience if we could kick off with some introductions. Please tell us who you are and maybe even a little bit about how you got involved in the world of EMS research. Uh, so Dr. McGuire, I'll go ahead and start with you. Welcome. Great. Well, thanks very much. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to, uh, to a great discussion today. I began my career as a New York City paramedic. I worked in the New York City EMS system for about two decades and uh, then went into academia, and I've been in academia, spent a couple of decades in academia, um, where a lot of my research focused on uh, occupational risks for emergency medical services personnel, uh, including some of the early work on fatalities among this group and um, uh, injuries in this group and specific injuries, transportation, violence, et cetera. And, um, um, I worked for a few years in Australia as a university professor as well, and now I am the senior epidemiologist at the U.S. Naval Submarine Medical Research Laboratory, where I look at occupational risks for uh, people in the Navy. So it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'll, I'll let her do her introduction, but I first I want to um, uh, preface by saying that uh, Al Alamiri is one of the outstanding graduates of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County's master's degree program in emergency health services, and now a lecturer, and uh, joining us um, uh, from the United Arab Emirates, where it's a little later in the day than it is here. So thanks yeah. very much for being able to join us. Thank you so much for this lovely introduction, Brian. 
Uh, good to see you and uh, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure being with you all. Uh, as, I, as he said, um, I'm a graduate from UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Um, I had my master's in emergency health services from there where I started with research. That was my first research um, and I published it. Um, um, the co-advisor was uh, Dr. Brian McGuire and uh, starting from there, I started my love for um, research and pre-hospital care. Before that, I used to be a nurse by profession, um, cardiac nurse for five years. Um, in the United States, I did my national registry as a paramedic. So I have the, the training and I know what are we talking about. I've seen that first in hand. Um, but then I shifted to academia where um, um, for the last 12 years I'm teaching in universities. Uh, currently, I'm in United Arab Emirates teaching at Hajman uh, University. Wonderful. Thank you both. We're so excited that you are here and especially that you've decided to share your time with us so late in the evening. So thank you again for that. Um, and congratulations on this paper. This is an exciting paper. When it came up in our search, we were like, we have to do this one. It is so important to talk about. Um, so I, I think we should just dive right in if that's okay with you all. Great. Talk a little bit about the objective of this paper. So there's kind of like a threefold objective and you all can jump in. But Describe current occupational injuries among paramedicine clinicians, which include EMTs and paramedics, and then determine the changes in the risk over time. And finally, compare the risk. How does EMS stack up between EMS and then other occupational groups to include registered nurses, firefighters, and then the general U.S. workforce? I'm curious, though, how did you all decide to take on this question? What brought this particular study about? I think that first impetus for it was I was a hospital administrator in New York City. And um, uh, one day after work, I got called that uh, one of my ambulances was upside down in the middle of the avenue. Oh. So I went over there. And uh, fortunately, um, the two crew members that were in the ambulance were okay. Uh, but it got me thinking that there's got to be somebody must have come up with a way to uh, solve this problem, to reduce this risk. And I was shocked to find out there's no research on um, on that type of risk, reducing that type of risk, and virtually no research on occupational risks for EMS personnel in general. So that started me on my quest. And when I was doing my doctoral degree, I uh, did the first paper that ever looked at fatalities among EMS personnel and compared them to other groups. And the first paper that was ever done on how non-fatal injuries among EMS personnel compared to other groups. So this paper uh, that we're talking about today is a follow-on to that initial research to determine, well, what's changed over time? We found in those early papers that EMS was much more dangerous than anyone had ever thought. Uh, the fatality rates uh, were comparable to the rates for police and firefighters. The injury rates were much higher than the rates for police, for firefighters, many times higher than the national average. And, um, and little to nothing uh, written about, well, what can be done to address these risks? So this is a follow-up to that. And, uh, and that was the, the impetus for, for this paper to see, well, how... How do the risks now, uh, how have they changed over time? And for some of them, sadly, we've seen dramatic increases in, in the rates. 
Absolutely. Measuring it's often a first step to improving it. So this is yeah. a really foundational piece and, and something that we've definitely needed for a long time coming. And I, I want to talk about how you got the data for this study. So here we move into the methods and we talk a lot about, you know, study design and setting is key for us deciding whether or not these findings are likely to generalize to my own system or not. And in this case, it was a retrospective cohort study over a decade from 2010 to 2020. And in, in this case, it wasn't a single agency. It wasn't a group of agencies. You all use the Department of Labor, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Could you talk to us a little bit about what that data source looks like and what your experiences was like accessing it? Yeah, I'd like to, to thank the Bureau of Labor Statistics for um, for all their work in this area. It's, it is, it's a critical resource and, um, and really the only resource of its kind. And they've been in this business since uh, just after World War One, so they have a, a lot of experience. And they collect data on occupational injuries and fatalities across the United States uh, over time. So, um, and the other thing that they do, which is which is very very valuable, is not only do they collect these data, but they make these data available to researchers. So, and to anybody, you can go to anybody can go to their website. And uh, and download the data in uh, different formats, and uh, so it's it's tremendously it's a tremendously important resource, but it also showed us some of the limitations that we have with uh, current data. Um, so, uh, would you like to uh, jump in? Yeah, Alamiri. Uh, yes, sure. Okay. Um, if you look at the history of the uh, DOL data, um, initially it was um, a, like a census for industrial related injuries. Um, and that's why you will find different mechanics or mechanism of injuries that are industrial like. And it it, it seems like it remains the same. So um, that explains why we have missing information more relevant to paramedics and uh, healthcare um, uh, occupational injuries like infections, like um, mental health, which is very common, unfortunately, among paramedics like PTSD. Unfortunately, these data are not available. So there, we found, we were surprised, like there were lots of shortcomings um, among this um, consensus, although it's a very rich information or um, like a mine of information, but yet there, there were um, um, shortages or, um, you know, missing information. But one of the recommendations for this paper, or if there is a home um, take take home message, is that we need a specific EMS uh, database that is um, that takes the consideration for uh, the EMS occupation in general and takes into other uh, contributions like um, call volume and um, more relevant information, connecting it to occupational injuries to paramedics. Absolutely, and that's one of the the big takeaway messages that although these data uh, are the best that exists, um, they're not sufficient to go to the next level. And the next level is really to look at how rates change after interventions. So the rates mm -hmm. inform the development of interventions to reduce the risks, then those interventions are deployed, and then the data should be able to tell you just like taking vital signs before and after giving a patient medication, the same, it's the same approach we use in public health as we do in, in paramedics, as paramedics, and that is we, we come up with an intervention, 
we measure the person before we give the intervention, we give the intervention, and then we measure after it. And that's what the next level data needs to be able to do. And so we don't have that available in the United States right now for EMS personnel. Uh, I do make reference to a paper that I wrote recently that does have a database like that, and it it connects all the personnel files, all the medical records, and all the operational files for everyone in our cohort. Uh, everyone in the co in that cohort were sailors, um, and so we had great data that we could connect together. Those are the type of data that we need for emergency medical services as we move towards reducing these very, very high rates of occupational injuries and fatalities. Absolutely. And I, I love that you highlighted the power of data over time. I, I spend a lot of time teaching improvement science, which really hinges on the question, how will we know if a change represents an improvement? And one of the best ways to do that is to observe variation in data over time and know whether our interventions and our policy changes are going in the direction that we hope that they would. Absolutely, um, critical. Definitely. So I, I'm curious to dig more into this database and talk about you know the limitations that came up. It seems to be a database that is an evolution. I know that when we get into the results, we'll talk about how some data were only available for part of the study because it got added. Uh, so it is encouraging to see that some information is being added, but when it comes to EMS, there are probably things that are very granular and very specific to this field that would be important right. to collect. But perhaps it makes sense to talk a little bit about, for the particular study at hand, who was included and who was excluded, talking about non-fatal injury and illness and why you all focused in on this. And if you want to talk a little bit about how you decided to include and exclude based on the way that the data were grouped and how they were available. Mm -hmm. So the population is defined essentially by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So they have a, an occupational group that's, um, the, that's titled Emergency Medical Technicians and Paramedics. And uh, we focused on that group as the most representative of the, of the population that we want to address. So Bureau of Labor Statistics does have a, uh, another group called Ambulance Attendants. Uh, it, there's a very small number of people on that. Uh, and we did not include that in this uh, analysis. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics also has a separate category for lots of other occupations, including firefighters. Um, and so there was some question about, well, if a person is a firefighter and a paramedic, or if a person is a paramedic employed by a fire department, but is a, is a non-firefighter paramedic, how are those cases uh, described. And I wrote to the Bureau of Labor Statistics about that. And uh, it uh, when, a per and they were very specific about if a person is employed um, as a firefighter, regardless of what their full-time job is, even if they're a full-time paramedic in the fire department, uh, any of their um, cases are assigned as injuries to firefighters. What's not clear uh, and I think the Bureau of Labor Statistics probably struggles with this as as many, um, uh, for probably for lots of reasons. Uh, what's not clear is if a person is employed by a fire department but is not a firefighter, such as uh, the New York City Emergency Medical Services personnel or um, uh, the Bureau of EMS as part of the fire department, they are not firefighters. All of their, what happens to all of their cases? 
And uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does not um, have a, a very clear um, uh, rule for that, or not that we know of. So it's very light. It's certain that any injuries to uh, paramedics who are employed as fire, firefighters, all of those are categorized by the Bureau of Labor Statistics as firefighters. What's not clear is if a person's employed by a fire department uh, as a full-time paramedic, whether or not those cases are also assigned as firefighter cases or paramedic cases. Which makes it um, dangerous. And when you look at the data, you have to carefully read the data in order to derive a conclusion. Yes, unfortunately, the paper shows that, or the data shows that um, uh, we have high incidence and high rates of injuries among paramedics. However, if what um, uh, Dr. Brian is um, um, is mentioning true and correct, that means we are facing even higher rates of injuries that are hidden and unreported, which makes the issue in hand is more like, you know, more scarier and, and more serious and takes um, it must take more action or um, urgent actions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And underreporting is always a major concern with something like this. Do you all know how the data get to the Bureau of Labor Statistics? Is this something where they're going out and sampling organizations or is there reporting that organizations are to be sending them with regards to their EMS staff and their injuries or how did the data get in there? Yeah, the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics does do a sampling. So uh, as as they they try to get as many as they can, but they make it clear that these are not all the cases. So they do the best they can um, and getting data from agencies. Jeff, you want to- That was my question. Yeah, very important uh, question. First off, thank you both for joining us and for sharing your really important work and shocking uh, stats, unfortunately. But I was also curious as a paramedic, and I know many uh, paramedics and EMTs are on this podcast and they're maybe thinking, hey, I was hurt a couple of years back. Is my injury in your data set? Am I in your paper? Um, so I was just wondering, um, people that are maybe self-treating, that are going to the ER and not calling this a work-related injury, those probably aren't going to show up. Um, but those cases, I guess it would be something that would show up on an OSHA 300 form, like a more than first aid injury, um, but not even all of those, only the ones where the DOL actively goes out and sends a survey or questionnaire, is that correct? Right, that's a very important point, Jeff, that uh, especially in our industry where uh, people who are injured can turn to their partner next to them and say, hey, can you take care of this? Um, and that there might be a lot of incentive for not reporting. So if a person has two or three jobs and this was their part-time job, and if they report it, they can't go to their full-time job, uh, there's a lot of potential reasons for for not for not uh, reporting it, and those are just for the frank injuries. What what the whole other area that is even more difficult to determine is when we uh, are exposed to infectious disease. So mm -hmm. we're exposed on a Monday, we feel fine on Tuesday, but Wednesday or Thursday we come down sick. Uh, how many of those are getting classified as occupational um, illnesses? And until COVID, probably not many. 
And even during COVID, we probably missed a tremendous proportion of them. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of limitations and another reason why we need a much better, much more robust system for that's focused on risks for this population. I agree, you made that case strong. I think it makes the findings that we'll discuss all the more scary knowing that this is likely uh, an underestimate. Absolutely. Right. And so before we get to the results, and I know people are chomping at the bit in the audience for it, what's the punchline? I want to talk a little bit about the choice of comparison groups. So maybe allow you could tell us a little bit about why registered nurses, firefighters, and U.S. workers were chosen. Of course, because they're very um, close. The occupations are very, um, you know, close in nature. And as uh, Dr. Brian said, that um, a lot of paramedics are cross-trained as firefighters. So we think that they they enter interrelated somehow. Um, we know that we have lots of statistics about um, uh, healthcare-related injuries among nurses, and we want to compare it to paramedics. Like, um, I used to be a nurse, and they they used to teach us one of the most common injury as nurses is, or among nurses is lower back injuries because of the heavy lifting of, of, of uh, patients. Unfortunately, among paramedics, it's higher than nurses, which is the highest um, risk or highest occupational injury among them. Um, firefighters and paramedics um, go like, you know, hand in hand, especially in certain um, incidents. So the work environment is quite similar because they work in um, outside the hospital or pre-hospital environment where they have lots of hazards um, um, in their, you know, office or outside um, hospitals. So um, we would expect that these are very relevant and very comparable. Absolutely. And I think this adds that context of, okay, we have the numbers for EMS clinicians, but where does that put them in relation to occupations that may be close and then just in general, the U.S. workforce? So right. I, I thought this was a brilliant choice of comparison groups and really adds to the conversation. And then I'll highlight your analysis really quickly. I, I know that statistics are not everybody's favorite, though they, it is my favorite topic. <laughs> uh, I, I think that you all made some really wise choices in how you chose to present the data in a way that makes comparison easy. And what I mean by that is when we're looking at rates, you standardized for person years and per 10,000. So that now if I wanna compare men and women, it's a, it's a simple comparison in the same units, whereas it could be really challenging to do that with different you know, sizes of different groups. So I think that standardization per 10,000 was really, really wise and helpful. And then when it comes to the relative risk, which is the risk in one group compared to the risk in another group, using that 95% confidence interval to give us an idea of how much variation there is. And of course, in, in such a large data set, this is also important for us to take a look at. Um, and then using much like we talk a lot about logistic regression on this podcast, but we don't always highlight risk ratio. But much like an odds ratio, if it doesn't cross one, we can say that it's statistically significant. And that's how the analysis was conducted here. Um, I will pause and ask if anyone else has any questions in the methods or if the authors have any final comments before we dive into what everyone's waiting for, the results. Hearing none, there's never any questions about the statistics. My statistician heart will just have to do. <laughs> All right, let's talk about our results. This is the exciting part. 
Uh, I Figure one is a perfect place to start. And for those who are in just listen only mode, figure one shows the number of employed paramedicine clinicians across each year of the study period um, and the demographics where they were available. And so I will turn it to our authors. Is there anything here that struck you or that you would like to highlight for our audience in terms of how the um, numbers or the demographics changed from the study period 2010 to 2020? But I think one of the things to to highlight is that uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, even though they make every effort to collect as much data as possible, they're only collecting data on full-time employees. And so we think there is in the neighborhood of a million people in the United States who are emergency medical technicians and paramedics. And yet we see from this figure that um, the number represented here is is a much smaller uh, uh, number than than what we expect in terms of total uh, the total population. So what that means to us is that the this this may or may not represent the larger population. For example, there could be many more women, much higher pr proportion of women uh, in in the full group. There could be the age distributions might be very different when we if we look just at uh, volunteers. So, so these, these data are the best we can do with what we have. These are what's available. And we can also see that not all the data were available for every year. So just from two, 2014 to 2019, did we have a breakdown by age group? And that's important that we can look at for those years, we could look at risks by age group. But we didn't have uh, that for every year, and we didn't have the number of women uh, in the population for 2020. So those are some important um, uh, first notes in terms of uh, the uh, population. Absolutely. And we've got a question from our audience that I'd like to bring in. So this is from Matthew um, about the term paramedicine clinicians um, and bundling paramedics and EMTs together. Perhaps you could comment just on that term and why it was chosen. Sure. Um, so over the last few decades, I've seen a lot of evolution in our profession. And um, and I've seen, I've taught in 12 countries now. I've seen EMS um, uh, and, and EMTs and paramedics in lots of different countries and how those systems are changing and evolving. And um, so it's it's a recognition, in my mind, the term paramedicine clinician is a recognition uh, that our profession uh, is a clinical profession and that we are um, caring for patients in a clinical in a clinical manner. And I think that um, having both EMTs and paramedics included in the term paramedicine clinician is an important one for overall look at at safety and at risks. Uh, based on my experience working on ambulances for many years, um, most of the, many of the, the risks are equally shared by EMTs and paramedics. So it makes sense here to look at them as one group. And that doesn't preclude us uh, looking at specific things later on. For example, uh, it would be, um, logical to uh, suppose that paramedics, for example, have higher rates of needle stick injuries, for example, than EMTs. Uh, but all of these things, um, so we can 
when we need to, if we need to, for specific research questions, look at the groups, um, look at, at those job titles independently. But I think for here, this is a representation that kind of we're all in this together. Uh, EMTs and paramedics uh, on, on many levels have very, are very similar when we're talking about occupational risks. Absolutely. And I love the thoughtfulness with which you chose the term paramedicine clinicians and focusing on the professionalization of EMS. And of course, taking each study question individually and not blanketing with, we should always stratify based on EMT and paramedic. No, for this question, it makes sense to lump the groups together. But for another question, maybe we would want to separate out. Exactly. Um, so thank you for that explanation. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the types of injuries and uh mm -hmm the types of injuries that were most common. Uh, but I guess before we get there, I, sh I shouldn't skip too far ahead. Table one, there are some important highlights here, especially with regards to men and women. And so I'll let the authors tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of were there differences between men and women when it came to just overall rates of occupational injury? Yeah, unfortunately, although the um, statistics shows that only 33% of our population were women, keep in mind that they only started counting for, for gender starting from 2010. So we don't have much data before that. But unfortunately, yes, we have small proportion or, um, or small portion of the population as women, yet the incident or the rate for injuries among women were higher significantly higher than uh, than men. Um, and when, when you come to details, later we will talk about types of injuries. One of the significant ones were, um, you know, injury related to violence. And unfortunately, also women show that, um, you know, unproportionately women have um, higher incidence or injuries related to violence or as a so the source of it uh, comes from violence um, when compared to men which we don't understand, you know, the data doesn't give, give us reasons or, you know, um, um, other factors to calculate and or to um, try to understand the reason. So that brings the suggestion for further research in order to understand why is it this case? Why um, is this phenomenon? Um, to try to understand why women are more subjective to higher rates of, uh, of injuries. Absolutely. Or potentially report more often. That's Maybe. a possibility. Absolutely. That is yeah. definitely a possibility. Yeah. We have no way to know Maybe at our, Maybe our pain tolerance is, is more. <laughs> we lean on our colleagues. Um, I don't want to report it for um, so we still these are anecdotal. We need to have evidence-based research in order to understand really what's going on. And I, I think that's so important. And like many good research studies, it raises more questions than it can answer at times yes. and just tells us that there's so much more that we need to dig yes. into. But this first finding here is an important one that we should definitely keep in mind. Right. And I do want to talk about the types of injuries. And I will bring in an audience question after this. Um, maybe you can just walk us through what types of injuries were most common? Were there any surprises there or, you know, having, for those of us who have worked in EMS, this, this may not surprise us, but let's talk just a little bit about what you found in terms of type. Yeah, one of the things we can um, see is that uh, the total number of injuries, which is uh, for those looking at the screen, the, kind of the, the solid gray um, column, um, rose dramatically in 2020. So that's um, that's a big concern. And these are the latest data we have. So we don't know if this trend has continued, that, um, that the, the rates, the 
of, of injuries may be much higher in 2021 and 2022 and into uh, even to today. So this raises a lot of concern about why these things are happening. We also see for the kind of the black line with the uh, pyramid um, superimposed is violence. We see a big uh, rate, big change in risk of violence. Um, so these are some of the things that kind of jump right out at us uh, in terms of um, some of the some of the highlights, and that musculoskeletal disorders and sprain strains and tears are major concerns for this group. Ella? Yes, um, if you see the trend over time, because this was one of our objectives, <clears throat> um, you can see the musculoskeletal um, um, injuries or falls, slips, uh, trips, and all, they, the, the, the last line from top, um, over time, it's, there's a trend to go down. Um, keep in mind that the numbers of paramedics and these and the census are increasing. So this like a slight drop, however, it's not significant. Um, this is also concerning because it means regardless of the interventions or anecdotal use of uh, protective equipment, yet paramedics are exposed to these types of injuries. Still, we have you know, um, lower back injuries, we have strains, muscle strains, and um, all related um, from overexertion and, um, um, you know, abuse of the body or body, wrong body mechanisms. Um, so yeah, that stands. Absolutely. And I think it's scary to see these things like the violence and other injuries, keeping in mind that this figure too is only including those injuries that involve days away from work. How many times are these assaults occurring and they're either not getting reported or not resulting in, in time away from work? So, again, you know, this should be a wake up call for us that, wow, there is you know, a desperate need for us to pay attention to occupational injury in this way. Right. Regarding violence, um, we don't have the full picture. Why is it? Because we don't have enough data for that. But we tried to connect the dots. Um, one of the research also myself and Dr. Brian uh, did in 2019, um, starting from 2019, and then we pub we published it in 2021, was about the um, the lockdown effect, the bottleneck effect on um, on the EMS um, dispatch centers. So the because of the bottleneck, there were lots of delays. We we would expect the violence that soars in 2020 is related somehow to COVID-19 effect on um, the AMS calls. Yet we, we are very careful to make this conclusion because we don't have um, specific data for that. But this is our speculation, like why did it soar during COVID-19? So it must be something related to maybe late calls or less number of paramedics reporting to work because of um, you know, all, all the mishaps of um, the infection or the pandemic. Absolutely. I, th I think that's really important. And I'm going to bring in Garrett's question in the chat too, that we spend a lot of money on back injuries and training on back injuries to try and reduce that risk. And fortunately, it looks like from this data set that we're at least not getting worse, um, which means that hopefully some of that continuing education is working. But it makes me think that that's one of the reasons why I love a cohort study is it's a snapshot in time and it can really predict where we're going and give us some thoughts on like, okay, how can we fix this problem before it gets worse is, okay, if we put a lot of continuing education training training into muscle sprains and strains and, and back injuries, we obviously need to be transitioning some of that to violence prevention, our therapeutic communications, um, some of that uh, sort of uh, verbal judo that we say. So re really interesting results. 
Yeah, and, and those are really important points because there is a myriad of interventions that well-meaning well ambulance agencies have come up with to address violence. And yet we know very little about the effect of any of those interventions. So people have tried bulletproof vests and body cams and legislative uh, and legal uh, solutions, but we know very, very little about how any of those, if any of those, have changed the outcomes. And we have no insights into uh, were there um, unintended consequences. So if you put a bulletproof vest on a paramedic um, in New York City in the middle of summertime and that person's out um, doing CPR or doing strenuous activity for half an hour outside uh, wearing a bulletproof vest, what other mm -hmm. unintended consequences might be happening? So, um, and my other concern about bulletproof vests is that there's a tremendous, and interventions like that, is that there's, there's no one, my sense is there's no one stop, one, one single solution. So if we give, we deploy bulletproof vests to a whole uh, workforce without the proper training, it's very possible that people will be going into situations that they wouldn't have gone into without the vest. So they might hear shots fired and think, oh, I have a vest on, so I'm, I'm safe going into this, into this environment. Uh, so there's a, all of these things need tremendous thoughtfulness in terms of how we approach it, what are reasonable interventions, and how are we going to test not only the outcome of the intervention, but to be able to monitor any unintended consequences that occur concurrently. Absolutely. And in improvement science, we call those unintended consequences the balancing measures. And they're so often neglected, but there can be some important effects that we didn't consider. Uh, even just the weight of the vest not necessarily being de designed for doing CPR, being front heavy, could that cause more back injuries? Absolutely. Um, so many, so many important things to consider and to try on a small scale first and collect that data and make sure that before we roll out broad scale change, that it, it's really changing things in the direction that we want. Absolutely. Jeff, also, brought, oh, sorry. Sorry, um, strain, tears, and sprains were also, um, you know, increasing over time. Or, you know, it's not. I'm not saying it's increasing, but it's um, it's not improving over time. Um, one of the main causes is, you know, stretcher loading to inside the ambulance. Um, we all know how tricky it can be, how challenging it is to paramedics. Um, there are, you know, the paper put some. Uh, possible solutions or suggestions like um, uh, powered stretchers, uh, you know, descending, automated descending uh, systems and so forth. So there is a need for more funds towards evidence-based equipment that reduces such preventable or avoidable injuries. Absolutely. And I've, I've been reading an interesting book lately, courtesy of my good friend, Dr. Jarvis, called Invisible Women. And Part of what that book states is around the design and ergonomics of equipment. And it didn't specifically talk about EMS, but we can imagine the parallels weren't designed for every height, every body size, every um, where our lift comes from. Um, and, and so thoughtfully working together with those who specialize in ergonomics and across fields uh, could potentially have great benefit for EMS. But again, that has to be done in a thoughtful way with the right kind of measurement to know whether the changes are resulting in improvements. Excellent. 
I agree with it. Yeah, taking taking in part in in mind the measurement of women, we're smaller in size. We are, you know, we don't have that muscle that a man have. So taking that into consideration will make it, uh, you know, very innovative uh, when when you design things for for paramedics. Absolutely. I think those are all really good points and uh, definitely appreciated your comments on those. And then also appreciated in your paper that you had some really interesting citations talking about violence and bulletproof vests and realizing that most of these violence injuries aren't even necessarily from a weapon, only about 10% or less. So the bulletproof vests might not even be preventing many of these. And a lot of the paramedic clinicians were not quite sure that bulletproof vests would really be the answer to that. So just kind of throwing bulletproof vests at everyone and their mother as the answer um, might, might be kind of oversimplifying things a lot. But was also curious your thoughts. I mean, unfortunately, it seems like violence were headed in the wrong direction, but looks like there might be early signs of the transportation incidents. Um, those were the number two leading cause uh, up until 2020. And maybe that was just a COVID blip, reduce EMS volume. So maybe once we get more data, that'll go away. But do you think that there's possibly any success stories or anything um, that could explain that decrease in transportation incidents? I would love to think there's a success story. Uh, and I'm going to go with that um, for the moment. Uh, but is it is it very possible that it, it has to do with COVID and um, uh, possibly because there were fewer vehicles on the road? There's there's a lot of unanswered questions as you as you uh, as you note, and uh, we need to keep a, a careful look at at this. As as you note, it's it's a very significant problem for our workforce. Absolutely. And speaking of our workforce, I think now's a good time to talk about how did the paramedicine clinician injury rates compare to those groups that you set forth early on? So to firefighters, registered nurses, and the U.S. workforce as a whole. Um, what highlights do you have for our audience that you know were either startling or, or something that we should just make note of? Would you like to start? Yes. Would you like to begin? No, I, yes, about yeah. uh, comparison of, of uh, risks. So, so highlights are things that that uh, kind of jump out are again, unfortunately, violence, and that we see that the risks for violence um, is a lot higher uh, for um, for paramedics compared to any of the other three groups. Mm -hmm. So about six times higher than the US population, about seven times higher than the rate for firefighters, um, and over 60% higher than uh, the, the risk for nurses. So even though uh, the risks for nurses are very high for violence, um, the risks for, um, for paramedics, paramedicine clinicians are even higher. And the same thing with uh, tr transportation incidents. So our risks are um, more than twice the the rate. The rate, and again, as as you uh, mentioned, Ramley, that these are only cases that resulted in lost work time. 
So we're not talking about every little injury. We're talking about uh, relatively serious injuries and um, the rate of transportation injuries twice as high as for firefighters and almost four times higher than the national average. So those are some of the things that jump out. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, just a point that, yes, all these data are to um, educate us on risk intervention or risk reduction interventions. However, um, when we try to understand uh, what could be the, the root cause for um, most of these injuries, um, we uh, speculate that fatigue might be a main cause for that, um, especially when it comes to musculoskeletal, um, you know, transportation related. Um, but fatigue is more related to your personal discipline do you get enough sleep uh, do you have three time job or three jobs um and and there are more personal issues um that requires more training more awareness among paramedics as well so it's not just the equipment and policies but also to target um the paramedics themselves and increase awareness among them um, to have enough uh, rest Absolutely. And I, you hit on an important topic that Dr. Daniel Patterson is also doing some important work around right now on sleep and EMS and how our sleep cycles are disrupted uh, yeah. when you get the call in the middle of the night and how does that affect us even on our days off. Um, so definitely a lot of research coming soon in that area and stuff we should be paying attention to because we we may underestimate the value of sleep for our bodies and how that is related to things like musculoskeletal injuries. So I'm glad that you highlighted that piece. Um, I'm also glad, Dr. McGuire, you highlighted uh, the transportation injuries. And this is another area where the EMS profession is putting more attention. And you know, this can be a controversial topic and, and it should be brought to the front stage. The use of lights and siren um, should be treated like any clinical intervention and, and used judiciously, not just routinely on every response and every transport. And in fact, the first ever EMS quality improvement partnership with 50 participating EMS agencies just wrapped up work to responsibly reduce the use of lights and siren to hopefully improve um, transportation incidents resulting in injury. So all of it's this interesting is you you brought this topic. Um, I heard from a colleague um, in Abu Dhabi, where you know in United Arab Emirates here, um, they have a KPI for siren. Like they they want zero siren operation. They want it to be silent transportation, um, and they're successful in that. That's so an interesting model. Add it as, yeah, it, if you add it as a KPI, and you make it incentivized, incentivized, I think this might be a good motive to change the practice. Absolutely. And, and so many um, departments in this quality improvement partnership have successfully reduced their lights and siren use and through things like consciously measuring and just changing protocol to include it like any other clinical protocol. I don't proactively intubate every patient because they may need help breathing. So I should use lights and siren when and where it makes sense. Right. Dr. Toon, welcome. Hi there. The, so to, just to touch on the most recent one about lights and sirens. So I've <clears throat> recently been on this kick to look at historical information about EMS, particularly prior to the white paper. And it's interesting to find in, in a number of papers where they talked about the ambulance services should not use a siren at any time in the transport of a patient. They don't talk about the lights, but they talk about the siren and specifically the negative effects that it has on the patient. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and increasing anxiety and heart rate. And it's very interesting that this is prior to 1960 that they speak a great deal about this. And so I find I'm finding that very interesting that there is this historical information. And somehow at some point that changed. And I haven't found what tipped the scale to the other way where everything is just responded to lights and siren. In addition to the talk about transportation industry, technology is there with the ability to control lights that you can speed transportation of vehicles throughout a community if they have a sophisticated system that allows them to control traffic signals, that allows them to have a smooth, consistent response and never need to use lights or siren. And I like to say one story is I was driving our medical director around back when I was working in Kansas and we were going to a call. And at some point he looked at me and he says, you know, you've not gotten a single red light. And I, he wasn't aware of the Opticom system we had. And and he immediately said, Oh, I'm going to request that I get this for my car. And I said, I'm not quite sure that could happen for your private vehicle, but uh, that was one thing. And then you spoke about fatigue Fatigue is very challenging with EMS providers and even firefighters because they want 24-hour shifts. They want 48-hour shifts. They even want 72-hour long shifts so they can have more time off with family, but they don't care about how it affects their performance when they're working. You know, and and, and it's, it's fascinating that we have a cultural issues with some of this stuff that I really do think the the culture is coming into play here and we're fighting that i think some of it is education as well in that um i think if we educated people about the risks that would um allow them to have some agency in terms of what's most important for me because certainly you know anecdotally across the united states the, the salaries for ems personnel is horrendously low uh, many people are, are forced to work multiple jobs. And so um, even with the ones that are doing 72-hour shifts, if they're doing that so they can work three other jobs, uh, there's a lot of problems that are, are associated with that. But I think if we could educate people about the risks uh, of those long shifts, um, that we can make a difference. You know, there was a case not that long ago of a young uh, medical resident uh, who crashed into uh, a young lady uh, at, in her car and a young college student caused massive brain damage. And uh, it turned out this resident had just come off a 36 hour shift. And why this is important to EMS is the family sued the hospital saying, you have at least as much responsibility as a bartender. You should have known that this person was not capable, should not have been out on the streets. And you let that person um, out on our streets. And I think this is um, this is a, a potential problem for EMS and fire agencies. If we're allowing people uh, to uh, do these long shifts, when we know that if you're awake for 21 hours, your level of impairment is higher than somebody with a legal, uh, over the legal limit of alcohol. And we know that. So we have a responsibility um, as agencies, as a profession, and as individuals, uh, to be able to uh, to to reduce these risks. Yeah, and I just want to add. <clears throat> I just want to quickly add on to that, Brian. It's just, it's funny that you see a, a data that comes out uh, about agencies, and they said, "Oh, we had the busiest 
ambulance in the U.S. You know, it answered 7,000 calls in a year or something like that. And I says, to me, that's poor management. Why do you have one ambulance answering that many calls? How can they do anything well? So I look at statistics like that as a failure of the system where they're taking place, where they have units that are operating that intensely. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up the medical resident part because when the medical residents kept their hour restrictions back in 2005, we had all this data. We looked at their driving fatigue and their their cognitive abilities after being up for that long. So it, it seems odd that we're still having the conversation in EMS when our colleagues in both uh, semi-truck driving, those regulations, and in medical residents have all demonstrated that you do not want someone taking care of you after they've been up, um, even just habitually fatigued. Right. Absolutely. I just wanted to ask your thoughts. Um, I saw that you had brought up Vision Zero, which I know is something that has been a national initiative from NHTSA and the Federal Department of Transportation towards really taking away this concept of traffic accidents, that really the only true answer um, is that we should be having no traffic fatalities and injuries. But I haven't heard so much about Vision Zero in the intersection with EMS, but I was very glad to see you mention it in the paper. So I was curious if you had any thoughts on where um, EMS fits into Vision Zero. Yeah, I, I think that should be our goal. Absolutely. Uh, we, we should have no dead paramedics um, or paramedicine clinicians from crashes because we know most of these things, what 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 causes most of these things, and we should be able to, to prevent them. So that absolutely should be our goal, zero fatalities. Um, and and even injuries, you know, we have we have many many um, paramedicine clinicians who get devastating injuries. They're not fatalities, but they're career-ending injuries, and those happen every year. So we have to do much more to reduce the risks of crashes across the board, and not only when we're in the ambulance, but you know, transportation is a broader term than that. We have a lot of people who are taking care of a person at the side of of a road and get hit by a passing car. Uh, so all that uh, is included in, in these risks. And we need to, we should have the goal. It should be our goal. It's the only reason to have right. zero fatalities. If the NHTSA said there's a zero goal, it means it's realistic. And we it, it gives us the, the legitimacy to ask to demand for it. So it's like a backup for us. Absolutely. and. I have the unpopular task of keeping us on schedule and wrapping us up. I know time flies when you're having such an interesting and important discussion, and I hate to, to wrap it up. But perhaps as a final question, I, I want to bring into audience comments, and either of you is welcome to comment on either, either or both. Um, but there was an interesting observation from Garrett around funding. In We see that the injuries are much higher among EMS clinicians. However, it seems like more of the funding is hitting in the fire space. And so perhaps you all can comment on how, you know, grant funding, how we should be advocating for ourselves as an EMS profession, as paramedicine clinicians um, and, and using research like this. And the second question is around, are there any plans to compare this among other countries? Um, so this was obviously U.S., but do you or others potentially have plans to look at this on a more broad scale, global EMS? Um, so. I'll pause there and have you all chime in with the last words. I'll start with you, Dr. McGuire. 
Yeah, no, we don't have a lot of time. Um, but funding is the is the big issue with all of this. You know, we talked about uh, the fact that paramedicine clinicians are very poorly paid. That's not the same in other countries. In other countries, paramedicine clinicians are paid comparable salaries to police, nurses, firefighters, much better salaries than the United States. Uh, and they're better. The agencies are better funded, and so we. The, a big part of a lot of the problems in EMS is that we have a system that's not adequately funded. We don't have enough funding for ambulances, for uh, for the systems, for developing um, new ways of treating patients. Uh, many other countries have gone to graduate program, graduate level clinicians, uh, and we have little in the way of, of ability to do that. And one of the reasons for that is that the low funding means that there's very few people who get educated. We have a very low rate of uh, master's qualified uh, paramedics. And, and Australia, for example, has 10 times the number uh, of uh, per capita number of paramedics with, uh, with doctoral degrees compared to the United States, 10 times. And a big problem with that is because we can't, can't, get enough people to get into the education system. So funding is 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 critically needed across the board and critically needed for for research. Um, Mary? Right. Our findings also suggest that there must be an EMS um, excellence center or center of excellence that oversees EMS data. We believe this is important to address um, important research and um, you know practice needs in EMS. Um, this this uh, agency, if it it's, if it's if it exists, it it can it can also push for agendas for uh, lobbying for uh, to fund for EMS in general. Um, you asked for uh, comparison. Um, I don't know if Dr. Brian has plans, but um, I looked at what is there here in, in Middle East. We don't have much data from the Arab world, unfortunately, but there is a small um, sample on Saudi Arabia where they looked at occupational injuries among Saudi paramedics here and or there in Saudi Arabia. And um, pretty much it's very similar. They have violence-related injuries as top, and then comes um, second um, transportation-related injury. So it, that reflects that the culture is the same. Um, um, a paramedic is a paramedic. We're faced with the same challenges um, in the pre-hospital care uh, setting. Um, and uh, But again, um, we are lacking data on PTSD or um, mental health-related issues. We're lacking also an infection. Um, I want to make this um, connection between nursing and paramedic. When it, like nurses have the uh, privilege to open the file, to know what's going on on the patient, they know the infectious uh, diseases the patient carries, but this is not a privilege on paramedics. You don't know what you're dealing with. So infection control and infectious diseases must be something something to look at seriously. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you both, not only for sharing your time with us, though we really, really, really appreciate that, but for taking on such an important and understudied body of work. And I know that this is one in a string of many, and I look forward to continuing to reading your findings as this continues to evolve. Um, and this should really be a wake up call for us. And it's research like this that's going to help us get attention and the funding that we need to move forward and be safer. Um, so I, I really want to thank you all again. I do have that unpopular task of wrapping us up, but hopefully we can keep the chat going on social media and on our podcast channels. Um, 
As a reminder, we have the education version of this Journal Club podcast. That will be Friday, January 26th. And we will be right here with our clinical podcast, second Monday of the month. Next one will be February 12th. February 12th, easy for me to say. Thank you all again for listening. And we look forward to chatting next time. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Pleasure. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey, and ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Music